What's up, everyone? El Nino Speaks is back. And today I have the pleasure of conversing with Edward Dutton. He is a professor of evolutionary psychology at Asbudo University in Poland. He's also the host of the YouTube channel, The Jolly Heretic, and is author of Making Sense of Race, Islam, an Evolutionary Perspective, and Spiteful Mutants, among other books. How are you all holding up these days, Edward? Do you call me Ed? Yeah, fine. How do you do? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. You're just about to go on holiday tomorrow and just got back from New Mexico. So it's quite a busy time. Awesome. So I've caught some of your appearances on the Cotto Gottfried Show and Buck Johnson's Counterflow podcast. And I find your insights about human intelligence to be fascinating. Can you tell my audience more about your background? Oh, well, it's a bit of a complex. I, I started off actually doing a theology degree. And then as part of that degree, I became very interested in a sort of the psychology and anthropology of religion, why people were religious. And so I ended up doing a doctorate on what's called religious studies. And this looked at why people were religious, but it did so from a qualitative perspective. And then from there, I moved to Finland and I became interested moving from religion to culture and why cultural differences exist. And from there, I, that became clear that a big part of that is intelligence and personality. And these are partly genetic. And then from there, I started becoming interested in the genetics of intelligence and personality and differences in it, and therefore in, in evolutionary psychology. So that's my journey over the, since about the year 1999 academically. Interesting stuff. So it's obvious you talk a lot about IQ, which is a very, dare I say, verboten topic these days. Why do you believe IQ is such an important topic to bring up in any discussion regarding public policy? Well, IQ, what do you want to achieve in terms of public policy? I would assume what you want to achieve is a better functioning society, basically a more, as it were, civilized civilization. And we've got these national IQs, and people have criticized them, and so they've been redone from scratch, and they correlate with the original IQs at about 0.83. And what you find is that every component of civilization, so how educated people are, how, how uncorrupt they are, how open to new ideas they are, how cooperative they are, how well public drainage works or, or whatever, political stability, employment, longevity, health, all of these positive things, they all correlate consistently and often strongly with national IQ. And at the individual level, intelligence correlates with basically everything positive you could think of, and it correlates negatively with everything bad you could think of. So if you want a society that functions well, you need to have achievement, motivation, altruism, analytic and abstract thinking. You need to be creative. You need to be healthy. You need democratic participation. You need educational attainment. You need emotional sensitivity. You need health and fitness. You need uh, depth of interests. You need marital stability. You need a good memory. You need moral reasoning. You need occupational success, social skill, blah, 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 blah trust, all of these things correlate with intelligence. And then what negatively correlates with intelligence is criminality, being extreme, alcoholism, authoritarianism, delinquency, dogmatism, lying, or falsification rather, hysteria, illegitimacy, obesity, racial prejudice, and lack of trust. So basically, intelligence correlates with everything that helps you to ensure a functioning society, and intelligence negatively correlates with everything that causes a, a maladaptive, destructive society. So it's undoubtedly extremely important to public policy. 
I take it that you're originally from the United Kingdom, correct? Yes. Does the UK have stringent policies against the use of IQ tests as a condition of employment or for university admissions, among other things? No. Okay. Yeah, because I've noticed that in a lot of like countries, especially like the US, after the civil rights revolution, they have made that practice, I think, like de facto illegal at this point. But, but- so it's not on all kinds of countries. It's basically a US thing. What you have in the UK is when you get into university, you do what's called your GCSEs, which you do at 16, and you do about 11 subjects, and all of the most important subjects are compulsory. And then you narrow down to what's called your A-levels, and you do those when you're 18, and you do three subjects, the ones that you're best at. Now, the marks that people achieve in their GCSEs correlate at about 0.7 with their IQ score. And similarly, in America, the marks that you achieve in your SATs It's effectively an IQ test. It correlates at about 0.7 with your IQ score. So in a sense, you do have a de facto IQ test to get into university, though you have all kinds of moral minority preferences and legacy places and all this kind of stuff, which allow people to get around that. As for employment, I don't know what the situation is in America, but I do know that um, a lot of big companies and whatever in the UK increasingly don't trust the degree. You get all of these people that come at them with good degrees because of grade inflation and too many people going to university. And so they simply institute their own de facto IQ test for those that are going to work for them. They're private companies and they can do that perfectly legally. Okay. Diversity is our greatest strength. That's like the phrase you hear the political class and the collective West always talk about. What is wrong with this commonly held assumption? It's a dogma. It's a dogma and it's empirically completely wrong. I mean, Diversity is our greatest strength, perhaps in some respects, in some areas of life. You you can imagine a situation, there was some film I remember called The Cube, as a Canadian film about 20 years ago, and all of the people had a certain strength, which meant that when working together, they could better get out of the cube. And so to some extent, it is true that diversity is a strength, that everybody in the society was the kind of genius type and nobody was the bureaucrat type, then nothing would get done. So you need to have a balance of different abilities within the society. You need to have people that are very good in terms of original ideas and creativity and whatever. You need to have people that are very hardworking and conscientious and follow the rules and are very careful. You need to have people that are very, very physically able and strong. You need to have a diversity in that sense. So in that sense, yes, diversity is our strength. But to say that diversity is inherently a strength, i.e. it is always good on all measures to be diverse, I mean, that's just bonkers. What is normally meant by it is ethnic diversity. Ethnic diversity is our strength. Well, within certain boundaries, you could say, if you have a society that is too inbred, that is too closed, then what you get is you get under, if harsh Darwinian selection pressures are weakened, then what you're going to get is double doses of harmful mutant genes and children who are consequently genetically, seriously, physically, and mentally ill. So in that sense, there is such a thing as what we might call outbreeding vigor, whereby If you breed two strains that are quite different, then you're less likely to get double doses of harmful mutations, and therefore you will get outbreeding vigor. And it's very noticeable that, for example, the children of two different races, let's say Japanese, uh, you know, or uh, East Asian and white, will often be quite good looking. They will have low levels of mutational load, which will result in symmetrical faces, which will result in them basically being physically attractive. 
on the other hand, you can have the opposite effect. You can have outbreeding depression. This can happen if two sets of alleles that have been apart for such a long time that when they interact in a complex trait, you can have unpredictable results. And there does seem to be some evidence, weak evidence, I should say, but some evidence that people that are biracial, black-white, are more likely to suffer from depression either than black people or white people. So in that sense, you could argue diversity, or at least certain kinds of diversity, is not our strength. As for the idea that it's good for society and the functioning of society, that's simply untrue. There was detailed research by Robert Putnam of Harvard on this, and he found that what happens is that once you have ethnic diversity, firstly, you lower social trust in general because the people of two different ethnic groups do not trust each other because we are evolved to be with people who are genetically similar to us because this helps us to pass on our genes. We are evolved with people to be, therefore, of the same ethnic group as us, because doing so allows us to indirectly pass on our genes. That's our evolutionary match, to the extent that when we are confronted with a person of a different ethnicity from us who we don't know, we react with a kind of primal fear response. So that's not a good thing. That's going to make a highly stressed society. But secondly, if you introduce a diverse society, then it reduces social trust even between the natives because they kind of blame each other for allowing the invasion to take place as they see it, or they fear, correctly often, that some members of their own group will collaborate with the out-group for their own individual interests against their in-group. So in that sense, no, diversity is not a strength. Diversity is the enemy of social cohesion. This segues into another point that I'd like to delve into as well, because let's look at mass migration, which ranks among the most polemical issues in the West. And it's been a fixture of public policy in the West since I'd say the 1960s, more or less. And what ways does mass migration impact a nation's collective IQ? Well, that entirely depends on the nature of the mass migration. I mean, let's isolate something. Let's look at the state of Hawaii. The state of Hawaii is populated or was populated historically primarily by ethnic Hawaiians, they seem to have an average IQ of about 90 something or 85, something like that, about the same as Mexico. If you look at the average IQ of the Japanese, a large number of whom migrated to Hawaii, they have an average IQ of about 107. And if you look at the whites who migrated to Hawaii, they have an average IQ of probably a bit above 100, because migrants tend to have a higher IQ than they leave behind. So I would have thought that migration would have elevated the average intelligence of Hawaii. If it is migration from people of a lower IQ, then that's going to have two effects. First of all, it's going to lower the IQ of the nation literally at the genetic level because the average IQ is going to go down. And secondly, you're going to have to change the education system, things like that. The education system will tend to be aimed at the lowest common denominator. So suddenly you're educating people that have lower IQ and therefore the people that are slightly more intelligent are not being pushed as much as they were before for their phenotypic maximum. So at the environmental level, you're creating basically a less intellectually stimulating environment, and therefore you're going to be pushing down the IQ even of the natives compared to what it would be without the immigration, because their environment will not be as intellectually stimulating as it previously was. So a case in point would be somebody who was very, very intelligent, but they were brought up in, I don't know, some part of Mexico or other and had to go to an ordinary school there. Their environment would not be pushed to the phenotypic maximum. It would not be optimally intellectually stimulating compared to if that same person was taken out of Mexico and sent to school you know, in, in Maine or somewhere like that. So it could push it up or it could push it down, depending on the nature of the migration. Yeah, mass migration is 
one of like the key public policies along with anti-discrimination laws that the West has pursued fully for the past 50 years or so. And in the case of the UK, does it have any specific like landmark legislation that kind of like embodies like this multicultural ethos, whether it's like anti-discrimination laws? You had laws that were passed in 1968, which made it a criminal offense to discriminate against people on the grounds of their race and the Public Order Act, which made it illegal to incite violence against people on the grounds of their race. You then had the Public Order Act 1986, which firmed that up in terms of inciting violence or whatever against people on racial grounds. But it really only took off after New Labour came to power in 1997, and they brought in laws such as incitement to religious hatred, such as that a crime would be punished more severely if it was considered to be ethnically motivated, racially motivated, much tighter laws and enforcement of laws on a supposed racial hatred and whatever. So I would say the turning point was probably about 1997, 1998, when New Labour came into power. And you had this cultural Marxist government, basically, that was intent on virtue signalling its way into power by collaborating with ethnic minorities against the interests of the native people. What about immigration? Does, are there any like specific immigration acts that were passed in this well, again, time. 1948 was the Immigration Act, which allowed Commonwealth immigration to come to Britain. And there was a particular ship, which, which, which lots of West Indians came on, called the Windrush. So that's a turning point, 1948. But then I think particularly from 1997 onwards, there was this huge spike in migration, which has really continued ever since, as New Labour opened the floodgates of immigration with a, a literal Machiavellian political policy. Again, I mean, this idea that I'd referred to earlier under Robert Putnam's research, that you have to be frightened that a society is divided between what we might call collectivists, who put the interests of their ethnic group first, and individualists who put their own interests first. And one of the ways that you can put your own interests first is by hating your own ethnic group and by having a sympathy for a foreign ethnic group. And it's been shown that left-wing people, their moral circle, is not inclined towards those that are genetically close to them. Like most peoples are, it's inclined towards their family, their kin, their ethnic group, whatever, their race. It's inclined towards those that are genetically more distant from them. And that allows them to collaborate with outsiders in order to virtue signal that they're very kind and loving people, and thus in a covert way attain power, and also to just collaborate with outsiders in order to get power over their own people. And that's what New Labour did. They deliberately brought in high levels of foreigners, uh, knowing that those non-white foreigners would, of course, vote Labour, knowing that they could essentially be a block vote. And it could change the nature of Britain so that their political opponents would have trouble ever getting into power again. And that's what they did. So I would see very much New Labour as the turning point in British history, as very much the marker that we were now in the winter of civilization rather than the autumn. Let's shift gears to more religious topics, because I've seen you write stuff about Black Lives Matter and QAnon as, as examples of mass political movements that could be described in many ways as religious revivals. What explains the rise of these movements and what do they say about the current state of the West? Well, there's many different factors that explain the rise of the movements. I mean, first of all, you could look at it on a sort of a genetic level. So until about 1800, we were under very harsh Darwinian selection pressures. There was about 50% child mortality. And what we were selecting for was a number of things that then became player typically related to each other, such as intelligence, genetic health, 
mental health, genetic physical health, and also religiousness. And aspects of religiousness have been found to be about 0.7 heritable. And by religiousness, I mean a specific kind of religiousness, whereby you engage in the collective worship of a moral god. As the selection pressure weakened, we moved from 50% child mortality to 1% child mortality. And that isn't just weakening the selection pressure on genetic physical health, because genetic physical health and genetic mental health correlate. They're part of a broader fitness factor. The mind is about 84% of the genome. So if you've got genetic mutations of the body, you've sure as hell got genetic mutations of the mind. So you're going to get more and more people that you're going to see the breakup, as it were, of the traditional religious bundle towards forms of religiosity that in some ways are more equivalent to what you get in weaker environments, where weaker selection pressure environments, where it's hotter and whatever, and basic needs are met. And so you start to see in those environments things that, you know, there's no moral God, there's just gods that you appease, or there's belief in superstition, or there's amulets, or whatever, all this sort of thing. And so I think that's what you see with Black Lives Matter. There's no moral God. That aspect of religion is not there. But what is religion in the sense that we normally understand it? It's a belief in a moral God, but it's also dogmas. We've got the dogmas. It's also religious fervor. You've got that. It's a sense of identity that makes you feel superior to other people or whatever. You've got that. It's collective action. You've got that. So you've got some aspects of religiosity with Black Lives Matter. And in some ways, I would see Black Lives Matter as kind of almost Gnostic, that you've got this in Gnostic religion, which interestingly you tend to get in the winter of civilization towards the end of Rome, the ends of Greece, you get certain people, people that are probably quite high in mental instability and depressive traits that see the world as a dangerous, unstable kind of place, as an evil place. And those people create a religion, like they cope with their feelings of negativity by telling themselves that they have some, A, that they're morally superior to everybody else, and B, that they have some sort of gnosis, some sort of secret understanding of the nature of the world. And that's what Black Lives Matter people are doing. They're kind of dealing with their mental instability. And we've got good data on this. People that are left-wing, are there's a clear correlation between being left-wing and being mentally unstable and having borderline personality, having narcissism, and being Machiavellian. And those things relate to each other because if you're mentally unstable, you see the world as a dangerous place, you want to control it, and so you're Machiavellian. And so they deal with their insecurities by creating a sort of false self, which is highly moral and morally superior to everybody else, is the least racist, is the most wonderful, the least transphobic, whatever, is the most wonderful person that there is, but they also have this kind of gnosis that everything is down to structural injustice or whatever, and only they are the brilliant mini-messiahs who can solve it. So that's the kind of religion they've created. It's really very similar to Gnosticism, and also, which is, of course, highly prevalent in the early church, and also perhaps to certain more primitive kinds of religiosity where, that you get before the, the strong belief in uh, moral god comes along where you know, you have like a belief, a very strong belief in two gods, the evil devil and the good god, warring it out or something like that. And then if you look at QAnon, it's actually quite similar. It doesn't attract people who are high in depression and who are high in Machiavellianism and narcissism. It attracts people who are high in psychopathology. And if you're high in psychopathology, then again, you're very, very low in trust you see conspiracies and whatever everywhere. You see the world as, as fundamentally evil and whatever. And also such people are often quite high in schizophrenic traits. People that are high in schizophrenic traits, again, they over-detect agency. So they perceive evidence of a mind behind everything, which makes them kind of hyper-aware and it makes them paranoid. 
And so such people would therefore be inclined, again, rather like, as is the case with BLM, towards the view that the world is run by evil people and they have some special gnosis into who those evil people are. It's just that it's a different set of evil people. Well, in both cases, really, it's the evil elite, but it's the evil elite in in different permutations. So I think they're very similar, but there are certain differences. One of them is that if you have depression, then you have low self-esteem and you see yourself as a weak person. And so therefore you don't openly play for status. So you covertly play for status like a girl would do. You signal victimhood and you signal weakness. And even people that are conservative sympathize with this because that we have these five key moral foundations as pack animals. We have the group-oriented foundations of obedience to authority, of group loyalty, and of sort of sanctity, of the belief in the holiness of the group. And you have as because we have to climb the hierarchy in prehistory in order to pass on our genes, you have individualizing foundations, that is to say belief in equality, because if everyone has the same, then you get proportionally more, and belief in harm avoidance, because you don't want to unnecessarily lay down your life for the group. And it's been found that people that are conservative are about the same in all five of those moral foundations, but people that are liberal are high in the individualizing foundations and low in the group foundations. Now, people who are extreme conservative, they tend to be high in the group foundations and low in the individualizing foundations. So what this means is that a lot of the conservatives, your normal conservatives, will sympathize with the left when the left go on about the importance of equality or when the left go on about the importance of harm avoidance, when they signal victimhood or when they signal their virtue as individuals. The average conservative will be sucked in by this and will cede ground to them. And so therefore, they will be able to attain power. So it's this subtle way of attaining power. It's covert. Whereas what you get with the people that are at the other extreme, they tend to be high in psychopathic traits. They don't have depression. They have high self-esteem, if anything. And so they will overtly play for power. So it's slightly different. And also you could argue that both sets of people are evolved to environments of instability and danger. But one of them, perhaps the people that are more depressive, they want to kind of control the environment to get rid of the danger. They, they fear the danger. They're frightened little people. Whereas the people that are the psychopathic types, they quite like danger. And so they quite enjoy, you know, creating it. It's what gets them out of bed in the morning. And so therefore, if something is what you get with the people that are on the left at the moment, is that if you are of low self-esteem and very unhappy with yourself, then how do you deal with that? You tell yourself, well, this is what is the society is saying is morally good. So I am the most morally good. I am the most extreme manifestation of that. So I'm going to signal just how unbelievably morally good I am and thus push society in an even more left-wing direction. And you'd get the opposite, by the way, if it was a right-wing society. So being depressed is associated with social anxiety. Being religiosity, it's social anxiety, you see. Extrinsic religiousness is associated with neuroticism. Whereas at the other extreme, a kind of person that is high in schizophrenic traits that person will be absolutely untrusting of anything and will be highly paranoid of everything, including the society. And a person high in psychopathic traits will literally be attracted to that which is socially unacceptable and dangerous. And so that's why you've got two quite different personalities with QAnon and with Black Lives Matter, but which are ultimately kind of Gnostic in a way. Yeah, let's delve into QAnon a bit more because I've read one of your articles at Raid External where you argued that QAnon is, quote, a religious revival for the age of political polarization and one which will likely outlast Donald Trump. 
end quote. Mm. Why do you believe QAnon has staying power? Because QAnon, you have a, particularly among white people in America, you have a people who used to be in charge, who, let's say, like working class or lower middle class white people. And they, okay, they're not particularly important. They're not particularly successful. One of the things that is associated with believing in conspiracy theories is low socioeconomic status. So a way of coping with not being particularly socioeconomically successful is by feeling that you have a sense of gnosis and, uh, okay, although you're not important in the society, you're kind of morally pure in a way, and you know the truth deep down, and this allows you to cope. Now, one of the ways in which working class, Malcolm X commented on this quite uh, trenchantly, one of the things that allows a unsuccessful white person to cope in America is the feeling, oh, well, at least I'm white. For God's sake, at least I'm white. At least I'm on the winning team. And they can attain some sense of self-esteem by virtue of being part of the dominant group. Well, now they're not part of the dominant group. Now they feel that their power is slipping away. They've felt this way since the 1960s. That's why they hang on to abortion. That's why they hang on to gun rights or whatever, because they feel their power is slipping away. And this gives them, one, this gives them a feeling of gnosis, a feeling that they're, that they're important as individuals. They have this deep knowledge that other people don't have. And so this is a self-esteem boost. Two, it makes sense of what is going on, casting them as morally pure and good and you know, good people and other people who they don't like, whatever, the elites as evil. Three, I think it's adaptive. I think it's it may be empirically wrong what they're saying, but that's not the point. It's adaptive to cast your enemy as the devil like that, as Satan is adaptive. It will make you Machiavellian. It will even these people are not necessarily inherently Machiavellian. If they were more Machiavellian, they would perhaps be on the other side. Or perhaps they don't, being lower in intelligence, they are less able to understand the benefits of adopting the dominant system and then virtue signaling about it. But it will make you Machiavellian if you really tell yourself that your enemies are utterly evil. And so it's very attractive in all of those ways. And apparently about a third of evangelicals in America are supporters of it. So it's a new religion in a way, which casts the woke and those in positions of power that are left wing and whatever as wicked. And I can see that would be very attractive to a lot of people. And you saw that play out in the January 6th riots, which they are debating at the moment in the American um, Congress. I think if that had motivated in that way, if those people have been better organized, then they probably could have carried off a coup. So you've mentioned this term, the winter of civilization, several times in this interview and also in plenty of other writings. Could you expand on this concept and what it entails? So every society seems to go through a cycle. There are various reasons why that happens. One of them is intelligence. But basically, you have the Malthusian cycle at its most basic. So you have a species in a, is in a particular environment, and the environment is relatively easy, and so the species is able to expand more, so there's more and more, people, more and more members of that species. Because it, the environment is easy, as it expands, it becomes genetically less fit, less adapted to the environment. And eventually, there is overcrowding. There are too many members of the species for the environment. And the result of that is the species starts fighting between each other, and then you'll get a collapse. And if concomitant with that, the nature of the environment changes. It becomes colder, it becomes more selective or whatever. Then what you see is a massive collapse. So you have the spread of disease and so on. You have a collapse in the population back to a smaller level, and then the process just starts all over again. But the population hovers around an equilibrium. 
And that's the nature of all, basically all species everywhere on Earth. With humans, it gets slightly more complicated in so much as they have the ability to build up civilization and thus control their own selection pressures, if you like. So a society will start off in its spring, it is very primitive, it is warlike and whatever. It's like the medieval period. And then it will build up, if it's a reasonably warm envi- reasonable environment and it's near its carrying capacity, then it will select for intelligence. It will select for intelligence because that helps you to survive in a harsh yet stable environment. It will select for pro-social personality traits because that helps you to survive in a harsh yet stable environment. It will select for genetic, mental and physical health. It will select for religiousness. Eventually, you get to the what you might call the summer of civilization. Just in this phase, society seems to be a bit different from the medieval period. It will go out and explore and find new places and things like this. And then you get into the autumn of civilization, where the harvest is taken in, where it's the heights of its intellectual achievement, because it's been selecting for intelligence for so long. But when that happens, of course, then it's starting to take control of its own environment. Then you've got more people living in towns. Then you've got more people living in luxurious conditions. And so the civilization itself has reduced the selection pressure. You've got plumbing. If we compare it to Greece or something like that, you've got the beginnings of medicine. You've got the beginnings of good architecture. You've got the beginnings of sanitation. You've got the beginnings of all of these things which basically reduce ecological harshness. And so in that sense, selection for intelligence now starts to weaken. It used to be that up until that point, that the richer 50% of the population had about double the surviving fertility of the poorer 50%. And because intelligence correlates at about 0.4 with how wealthy you are, you are selecting for intelligence. And we know from ancient genomes that we were selecting for alleles that are indirectly associated with intelligence across time. And we know that on other markers that were increasing across time, the size of the head is increasing, and therefore the brain is increasing in size. The brain size correlates with intelligence at point three. Literacy is increasing, even though the standards of living aren't increasing much. Numeracy is increasing. The murder rate is going down. All of these markers of intelligence are increasing. But then eventually, when you you start building up cities and whatever, then you reduce ecological harshness. And also, more intelligent people are more environmentally sensitive there's a good evidence for that, because if you're more environmentally sensitive, then you're less instinctive. And if you're less instinctive, you're better able to solve complex problems and not react to them instinctively. And so it seems that more intelligent people start to become, sort of feel a sense of dysphoria once they're in the high civilization. And so they stop having children. If you have contraception, then more intelligent people will be more willing to take it up and better able to use it. And so they stop having children for that reason as well. It could be our more intelligent people will be more rational. They'll be more likely to question the religiosity. The religiosity is a way of coping with the harshness of life and with mortality salience. And so you, you start questioning that. And so therefore, those people will stop having children. They'll feel there's no meaning to life. Then intelligence starts to go down. Then it, once intelligence starts to go down, then, of course, civilization collapses back into the winter of civilization, and everything that held the society together starts to be questioned. So once the society has got a relative level of ease, people no longer believe in religion. The religion doesn't hit in. So life, therefore, just has no meaning. It's easy. We're evolved to be in a situation of struggle and violence and death. If that's not there, life is just easy. And you start questioning religion, and everything religion upholds. It upholds patriarchy, for example, as adaptive. And everything becomes questioned. And towards the, it was noted that towards the end of Rome and Greece and Islam. You get feminism, you get immigration, because we no longer believe that you're God's chosen people. You get the questioning of aristocracy, you get 
the undermining of democracy and social trust, because that's associated with intelligence, and you just get the collapse down into chaos. And that's what's really going on now. And I've got a book coming out in July called The Past is a Future Country, The Coming Conservative Demographic Revolution, which looks at that in some detail. Yeah, it's actually a perfect segue because you do have like some pessimistic views with regards to the way the West is going, but you still believe there is like a silver lining among several right-leaning constituencies. And how do you see the right reconstituting itself during this period of decay? Well, I think that what we have to understand is that our ancestors were brought up under a situation of high child mortality where the crucible of evolution was child mortality. The child mortality rate was about 50%. And if you could survive child mortality, then basically you'd be all right, and you'd probably manage to pass on your genes to some extent. And also warfare. That was another thing that was a big killer. Those things not affect us. Our child mortality rate is about 1%, and we're not particularly majorly affected by warfare and conflict. We're affected by our own high mutational load and the reflections of that. We have moved from a situation where the crucible of child mortality, sorry, of evolution was child mortality, to a situation where the crucible of evolution is basically wokeness and the ability to be infected by wokeness. And if you can avoid it, then you'll be fine and you will pass on your genes because that's what's going on. So we we had the situation basically until, as I said, Industrial Revolution, where you have high levels of child mortality and every generation, those that are genetically sick are purged from the population. What has happened since is a collapse of child mortality and thus an incredible buildup of mutation in the population, mutated people that believe in maladaptive, sick things. And also people that are highly individualistic and selfish and mentally ill. Because remember that we were selecting under harsh Darwinian conditions for religiousness, for mental health, for physical health. So therefore, you're going to see a deviation from that that is what mutation will bring about, a deviation from that optimum. And we know that religiousness, traditional religiousness, is associated with genetic mental health, genetic physical health, fertility, or whatever. It was clearly something that was adaptive. So you're just going to see a deviation from that, more and more and more individualistic people. And what I think happened is that they built up in the population, but they were being held back by a culture which was reflecting still, for a long time, this traditional religious adaptive way of doing things, a culture that pushed you along an adaptive roadmap of life and said to you, you know, you have to have children, you have to do things for the good of the group, you have to sacrifice your life for the good of the group, you have to, you know, submit to the patriarchy, all of this kind of adaptive, because the patriarchy means if you have patriarchy, if males control females, then there's less intermale conflict, and therefore the males will cooperate more, and if they cooperate more, they'll be more ethnocentric, and they'll fight off outsiders, and there'll be less intermale violence and whatever, so that's where patriarchy is adaptive and religiously sanctioned. And so so you, you had them being pushed along the adaptive pathway of life, even in my own childhood. But then eventually, I suppose a tipping point was reached, whereby either 20% of the population or 20% of the elite were individualists. And when you get to that point, it's been shown in experiments, then the whole society will tip over. 
And so that probably happened in the 60s. That was when the tipping point was reached. And we moved from being a highly group-oriented society to a highly individually-oriented society. We moved from promoting those group-oriented values that I mentioned earlier to the individually-oriented values of equality and harm avoidance. And then once that happens, you then get runaway individualism, runaway equality, and runaway harm avoidance. And once that happens, more intelligent people will tend to notice what the dominant worldview is. And they will tend to, through effortful control, come up with ways of convincing themselves of the veracity of it so that they can signal their adherence to it and they can attain status and power. So therefore, more intelligent people, well, more than less intelligent people, tend to be drawn into this leftist hegemony and you then get runaway individualism. But the problem with it is a number of things. So first of all, this individualistic system that we have, it promotes We can see these people that do this, as I've said in my book, Spiteful Mutants, the leaders of this, like Andrew Dworkin, as spiteful mutants. They promote the idea that you should feel bad about being a man, that you should feel bad about being white, that you should feel bad about being successful, that you should feel bad about being a human, even, that we should consider ourselves to be bad people, that we shouldn't pass on our genes. It's basically anti-natalist. And it indoctrinates the more intelligent people with these anti-natalist anti-human, anti-European, whatever, you know, self-esteem ideas that promote that you shouldn't have children. That's the first thing. The second thing is that these more intelligent people will be more inculcated with general liberal ideas and general liberal melee, which says that you should the importance is you as an individual and you should, you know, go to university and work hard and all this and not have children. It doesn't matter. That's not important. They will be indoctrinated by this. Thirdly, They suffer from depression anyway, because we know there's a correlation between depression and leftism, and that also then correlates with not having children. And so all of these things come together to mean that these kinds of people don't have children, that people can be indoctrinated by wokeness. Wokeness becomes the new crucible of evolution into not having children. Your whole environment is pushing you along a a maladaptive roadmap of life, basically, and telling you to not, both directly and indirectly, to not pass on your genes. And so only this is then an evolutionary event. And certain people are going to be genetically resistant to that. Well, who are those people? Who are those people that are resistant to wokeness? One is low IQ people because they are unable to control their impulses. And so they just have lots of children by accident. So there's a negative correlation between fertility and, and IQ. Two is people that are high in agreeableness. That's a personality trait agreeable to basically being a kind, nurturing person. They want to have children, they have children. And three is religious people and conservative people. And so those are the people that are having children. Now, the problem with that in terms of the right taking power back is that a revolution from below doesn't tend to work very well. A revolution has to have a combination of from below and from the top. It has to be organized. So it has to be intelligent people. And this is where it gets interesting because the evidence is that when you control for intelligence, then it is conservatism that predicts breeding. And when you look at the top quartile of intelligence. It is conservatism that is massively predicting breeding and liberalism, which is massively predicting infertility. So what this means is that conservatism is maybe 0.6 heritable, intelligence about 0.8 heritable, and once you become part of a conservative group, which promotes natalism, of course, then it flips the other way. You are inculcated in a subtle way to have more children, and you simply have a desire to have more children because you're conservative. So what's happening is that there is this movement whereby 
intelligent people specifically are becoming more conservative. And I think that's part of why society is so polarized at the moment, because you've got this, among Generation Z, leftist extremism, if you like. It might seem like we're getting more and more left-wing all the time. We're not. People who are in their 20s compared to people that are in their 40s are nowhere near as left-wing as they should be. They should be way more left-wing than people of my age, but they're not. And so something's happening. And what's happening, I suspect, is that we're seeing the results of this gradual genetic change whereby people who are very liberal resign from the population, and they particularly reside from the population if they're highly intelligent. And so the only people that are highly intelligent that are breeding are people that are very religious and very conservative, and those people are now making their presence felt. And so you have increasingly a polarized society between the liberals who are in charge at the moment, but a restless, growing, conservative, aspirant elite in the younger generations. And so what we predict is going to happen is a kind of coming apart, whereby society will basically collapse into third world chaos, Mexico-like chaos, but that certain high intelligence, religious and conservative people will keep civilization going in a kind of neo-Byzantium, along with other conservative, intelligent people who are basically white line, you know, Hindus and intelligent Muslims and whatever, intelligent black people, they'll all kind of white align. And the low IQ whites will kind of black align, and there'll be a kind of coming apart. And the same thing, by the way, very similar thing happened with the collapse of classical civilization. It never completely collapsed. Byzantium carried on, and Byzantium pulled into it like a magnet, intelligent people from all around what had been the Roman Empire. So that's the same process happening again. So that would be the positive outlook. That would be the the white pill. If I was going to look at a black pill, it would be that there won't be a collapse like this. We will carry on technologically until we're so sick genetically and so stupid and so little knowledge is passed on. Because of course, once society collapses, then you you go back to a simpler life on the land and you have to do gardening and practical things and things that aren't being passed on these days. Even cooking isn't being passed on these days. And so if you were to get a massive collapse because we were hit by a meteorite or, I don't know, a massive solar flare of the kind the character events in 1859 which knocked out the electricity system of the time, then in a context like that, you would have mass death and it would be questionable whether you know, hardly anybody would survive. That would be the black pill. But anyway, in the, far, the past, the future country, I look at the white pill. Well, I think this is a great way to end this episode on a positive note. But before we depart, Ed, where can my listeners follow your work? So they can follow me on my YouTube channel, which is also on BitChute and, sorry, uh, yes, BitChute and Odyssey, The Jolly Heretic. I live stream on Mondays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. UK time, 2 p.m. New York. On Mondays, I normally am there on my own answering your various intelligent questions. And on Thursdays, I have a guest. For example, on last Thursday, I interviewed Ron Unz. And I've interviewed various interesting people, Nick Fuentes, various interesting academics as well. So that's that. And then you can follow me on Twitter at, at Jolly Heretic, and you can check out my website, edwarddutton.com, where you can see my books and my various academic papers and, and other such things. Thank you for coming on, Ed. And to all of my listeners, I appreciate your attention. And with that, El Nino has spoken.